0: I hope you're all enjoying and listening. I am very fortunate to have a prolific guest today. I'm very excited. His name has come up many times. And and I'm really looking forward to having a long discussion with him today because my Facebook feed is filled with a lot of people talking about how terrible Facebook is and how the world is burning and all these different things. But every once in a while, I get these little rays of sunshine in my Facebook feed that make me happy and i and i know that there's positivity out there in the world and there's people that are willing to kind of do some research and kind of figure out how to make things better and and their opinions are very well formulated and you can tell that they have a very positive outlook on life so i'm very happy to have a a good friend his name is stan crocker he is a three-time emmy nominated lighting designer and director at sightline design group Thank you so much for making time to sit down and chat with me today, Stan.
1: Thank you, Chris. It's good to be here.
0: So your name has come up several times. A lot of people have uh, cited you as your their inspiration, as their way of getting into the industry. And they, they, also, they often comment on like, what in the world is Stan doing until they did it? And they're like, oh, that makes sense. So I kind of wanted to sit down and chat with you today and kind of, Number 1 let you know that that is what people are talking about you and they're saying really nice things but saying that you kind of take a, a deep a deeper dive into the Stan Crocker optimism the Stan Crocker yeah. genius I, I don't know if I want to I don't want to inflate your your bubble too much but I mean it is So people are very interested to see how Stan Crocker ticks
1: I'll take the optimism part of that and uh yeah I try. I try for that. Definitely, moments now being a challenging time that uh, is representation of that. But moments when that optimism uh, starts to take a take a few hits. But I do feel generally optimistic <laughs> about, uh, about. Yeah, the work- that's that. a,
0: that's a good way to put it. Even the pinnacle of optimism, it it gets dinged all the time. You can only yeah, you have to keep pumping optimism in. Optimism bubble to keep it because everybody wants to pop it. It yeah. seems especially these days. It feels like everybody wants to pop the optimism, up. You're gonna, you're optimism be bubble.
1: you optimism bubble. Keep your head down, man. Keep your head down. do <laughs> <before> we go.
0: <laughs> so when it comes to the optimism, do you think it's a a nature or a nurture thing? Did you did you develop this level of optimism, or do you think you were just born this way?
1: I think it's possible. I was born with it. Um, I think along the way um it 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 took a hit in mm. my uh in my teen years and, and uh went through a period of time where uh optimism would not have been the first word to describe me. Uh and then then in the twenties, um honestly about the time that I started to see well no, yeah, absolutely flat out. I can say that the moment that optimism really truly hit my life was when I uh I found uh theater and art, entertainment, recognized a career path, all that. It all hit in about a three-year period. And at the very beginning of that, that I, uh, I started riding a real wave of optimism that continues now.
0: So you found an outlet for all of that, uh, that pent-up uh, inspiration and uh, creativity that just kind of gelled with you at some point in your 20s?
1: yeah up until then i didn't know I had uh, creativity and I certainly had no inspiration coming from anybody I, uh, so so yeah so it uh it was uh, an eye opener for me basically i I, I, um, I moved to uh you know I went through this this weird path uh, on the way to design and and um, and that I, I started out as working I was basically in, in charge of the uh, blood, emergency blood supply for five states uh, at, at like 19, 20 years old, somewhere in there. Um, I don't know how I ever got the job. I mean, I was I was uh, I was a mess, flat out a mess. But I took that job seriously, and I rose I rose to it, and uh, and I had the power to, to, you know, I could pull in sheriffs, officers, police. I, I could launch an aircraft. I could get uh, I could get the highway patrol to, to to fly from one state to the other with blood that I was transferring, and uh, and it, ha- it had a profound effect on me. You know, to feel like I had value in the world and and that I could do something. And in those moments when I would be running through the local hospital, you know, making the b- delivery myself as opposed to passing it off to uh, to a, a police officer who was then running it out to the airport, et cetera, something like that. Um, to have that feeling of running into a local hospital and actually being part of a team at that point where somebody's somebody's waiting for it, there's a, a nurse or a tech standing by and I'm, I'm unpacking things and checking it in and, and there's somebody, you know, in the next room over that's bleeding out from something and, and here I am, you know, literally with the life-saving fluid and uh, it, it had a profound effect on me. I wanted to feel that rush all the time. And so I started leaning towards a career after meeting several people in that world. I started moving towards a career in uh, in uh, nursing, with the specific goal of being a certified registered nurse anesthetist, a CRNA. I was going to gas people for surgery, and um, so to that end, I uh, I, I uh, registered at Mankato State, what was then known as Mankato State University, in southern Minnesota, and. Um, and I, uh, I took uh, a couple of classes that were specific to my pre-nursing needs, orga- organic chemistry and anatomy and physiology, and then a, uh, an elective class in introduction to theater. And uh, it only took about a month of, of ha- it took about a month of having just as much fun as I'd ever had in my life in the theater program, working on you know the uh, the uh, production that was going on at the time, Sound of Music, and working with the dance company specifically as, as an assistant stage manager. Um, it, it only took about a month of that, and about a month of just beating my head against the wall, trying to understand uh, elements of science that were just as foreign to me as the Russian language, anything, I just didn't. I just, I I couldn't do it. And so I finally just arrived at this point where I was like, okay, I've got a great bedside manner, but I have no scientific aptitude at all. And I dropped those classes and threw myself into theater. And I was on on the way to Minneapolis at that point.
0: So you were a teenager rushing blood to hospitals at the time. Yeah. With the aspirations of becoming an Yeah,
1: yeah. So
0: Life saving was in your blood, and then you're like, "Oh, well, you know what? I'm going to drop this and totally switch gears completely."
1: Yeah, yeah. Wow. I, I knew I wasn't. I would have been. I would have been incredibly inept. <laughs> it would be okay for me to be inept as a lighting designer. You know, I would get weeded out. But to be inept as a, uh, you know, as a, <laughs> a related nurse. <laughs> I wasn't willing to take that route. Yeah, die. You know.
0: Yeah, there is, that is an appeal to our industry is that we do get to be creative. And at the end of the day, we're, our likelihood of letting anybody bleed out at a concert are very low. Very slim, yeah. Very I'm sure it happens. I'm sure some people yeah. have had to deal with that. But it's, it's pretty slow, pretty low.
1: Well, you know, ironically, I mean, I ended up switching. Before I gave up on nursing and – not. I, no, I'm sorry. Before I uh, moved forward at nursing, I went through a period where I thought I wanted to be an EMT emergency medical technician, mm-hmm. you know, higher, higher level of training. And, uh, and I was I pursued that route. But in, back in those days, you had to be a firefighter. Um, right. First and foremost, some places you still do. And so I took the firefighters test. And uh, this will be no surprise to any of my crews, I uh, I failed the mechanical aptitude part of it. And so again, I was like, ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> but I always maintained my you know maintained my uh certification from american red cross and and uh and uh took seriously my you know my my need to know how to give somebody cpr and keep them alive and so jumping forward to how that all comes together i was uh, the lighting designer for ozzy for several years for five or six years and and we went through a period of time where people were just dying it wasn't him it wasn't, it wasn't. No, it never well, was. It was many of us. It was just coincidence. We had a guy 20 feet behind the console. House lights came up, and some woman started screaming, and and uh, her, uh, her her husband had had died. What well, was dying from a heart attack, and ultimately did die. Um, we had kids jumping off the wrong part of the parking ramp and taking a fall, and and. We had uh, just all kinds of things. We actually had a bus accident, a tour bus accident, accident in which uh, four people died. And so all of that added up to me one day calling American Red Cross in Buffalo, New York, because I saw that that was a day off coming up. And um, I asked a bunch of the crew, I put the word out that I'd talked them into doing a two day first aid class and CPR in one long day for anybody that wanted it. and a dozen of my touring buddies jumped in and uh so we started and in you know, the first the first night the next night um the the, the uh, tour security guy uh jumped in on a uh, somebody having an epileptic seizure and did all the right things and uh and then that was the first of many things that happened where people have been using that that since using those skills since so it was a satisfying uh, merging of my past goals with my my present situation.
0: That's uh, almost a story of instant karmic satisfaction. There, like yeah. you did the the necessary things to make sure that the right people were in the right place to save save lives. Yep. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, I've got to you know own up to the fact that it was also self serving. I looked around a tour that had thirty road crew on it. And I was the only damn one that knew CPR. (laughs) I wanted the rest of them to know. So we all, we all had those skills.
0: It's so refreshing to hear a story where somebody had the forethought to do something and it worked exactly as planned. Yeah. Because those are the sort of things that often go unnoticed. They're like, well, a week ago, I learned how to do CPR and then I was doing CPR. Whereas if nobody had known how to do CPR at the right place at the right time, somebody would have lost their lives and like, man, if only somebody was here, they could have known CPR. Those are the things that make the news when people don't know CPR at the right time at the right place, that makes the news. But the guy who knows CPR at the right place at the right time and saves a life, it's not newsworthy because you know, everything happened according to plan
1: preferred yeah yeah and, and, and uh, you know Sharon was happy that Ozzy got some good press because we ended up on the uh, American Red Cross international uh, um, monthly magazine that they put out it was me and the uh, the security guy he had um, done the uh, the sling wrap on me and on, uh, on a what was uh, meant to be a, uh, a broken arm incident. Uh-huh. And uh, he was standing next to me, you know, with, uh, probably looking at his work. And, and the uh, instructor took a photo and it ended up on the, uh, on the uh, Red Cross magazine.
0: <laughs> yeah, nice. It's photos. very cool.
1: Yeah. Wish I had that. Where'd that go? Lost that magazine.
0: It's in a box somewhere. somewhere. Tucked away in an attic uh-huh. somewhere. Yeah. Where all of our <laughs> stuff ends up as, as roadies.
1: Platinum so this is like
0: a lifelong passion for you, then uh, saving lives and uh, doing uh, handing out blood to the people that need it, and then still touring the world. Those are you've kind of fulfilled all of your passions here.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm glad I did what I did. someday I may go back to it. I mean, I, the the town I'm in is as a volunteer EMT and firefighting team, and and I've I've talked. To a few people about eventually when i 'm not traveling as much, possibly joining the uh, EMT part of that, which i I now have the confidence to uh, I, I know that I have those skills, and so I can uh, comfortably find my place in the uh, the healthcare world but it'll be a way down
0: i I share that passion and I wish that I was able to overcome it because I also would love to be able to volunteer locally, but I, I couldn't, I can't commit to anyone because I like at any time I could get a phone call tomorrow and, and have to be somewhere. I imagine you have the same problem. Oh. Well, look, I would love to, to agree to a, a month worth of volunteering, but at any point I could, I could be in New Zealand tomorrow. And sure. I, I can't yeah. give you warning.
1: That's a hard balance. I do a I do a fair amount of, of uh, volunteer work in my town, and, and um, but most of it is you know, parent related. My boys are now both in college, so there's uh, that 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 whole area just kind of went away. Just for, for the most part, I still uh, um, give guidance to anybody that wants to try and uh, work their way into my into my industry that I'm not actively involved as his parents are, you know, uh, I've gotten all that time back in my life now, which, which is an interesting Good For you. to have chill time, hammock time.
0: Let's kind of go into that a little bit. What is it that you're doing these days to get more people in, into our industry? How do you go out and say, Hey, you guys, this is a job that you can make money to, regardless of what your parents may or may not think. There is money to be made. You're not going to be yeah. a starving artist.
1: Well, you know, I, uh, in addition to, to, uh, in addition to guest lecturing at university of Iowa and Cornell college, I also will go in and talk to, um, I, there, there's a couple of great programs in the, the school district here. Good. A good friend of ours has a, has a, um, a children's theater company that my boys have been involved in uh, since, you know, for 16 years since they moved here, since we moved here. And, um, and, uh, and most kids in this town have gone through that program. And, and you can tell when you're in the school district, you can see the confidence when you're at schools at events. You can see the kids that went through the program have a high degree of confidence when they're up in front of the class talking. They're, they're comfortable up there. Um, she's, she's definitely given them a, a, a gift in that regard, but um, also uh, she's shown them the way to creative opportunities like scenic design and lighting design and, and prop design and costume design, all that stuff. I mean, it's like they're getting a, these kids in this town, if they get early exposure to that and they benefit from that. Whether they use that as a career path or not, most of them I have found. Um, stay with it afterwards. If they do theater with her twice a year, a summer program and a, a Christmas program, they tend to do the same when they're in the school system. And they tend to carry that forward when they go off into their own careers, whether they are related or not. And um, I think that's very much to the advantage of those kids. And so uh, I'm, uh, I'm called on it. Early in the process, the, the, the first show of the year, I will frequently go in and, and give that safety talk about, you know, the catwalk and about, you know, flying things over people's heads and about driving the, uh, driving the lift around on the stage and and about fatigue and how fatigue hurts people in our, in, in this world. And you need to be sharp when you're doing things and uh, mm-hmm. taking that time for yourself to get a meal and to get some rest and. And so I'm able to lay out a lot of uh, safety for them, and then I, I get in a position where I actually get to, um, you know, give them a lighting designer the, the perspective of a lighting designer from another part of the um, of the entertainment industry, not you know not theater. I give them my perspective um, on lighting, and they take that with the uh, what they learn what they learn being in those programs about theater writing, and uh, and they can carry that forward. And they know that what they're doing in theater could lead them down a similar path uh, as my own. And, and definitely there have been kids that are from this, this town who have made their way into theater programs um, around the country and are, are out there pursuing these careers now. That's and got
0: it, to be fulfilling. So, uh, I would imagine that's rewarding to know that you were a mentor in that, in that role.
1: I love, I love being part of that. and I love keeping up with them as they're moving forward. And, um, you know, and I've got two very creative kids too, and, and I don't want to talk about them be, without their permission, which is something I learned um, about social media etiquette taught to me by my seven and nine-year-old at the time. Um, but, so I won't speak specifically to what they're doing in life, but they're yeah. two very creative uh, young men doing interesting things in the world. And uh,
0: I, look for, I, want, I, I look forward to getting into that conversation very soon, but, but uh, I want to ask before we get there, I, you mentioned very high confidence levels from the people that you're teaching, and I would imagine let's refer to them as the next generation of lighting professionals. Are you optimistic? Are you seeing that there's going to be a lot of well-educated, well-informed, inspirational uh, kids coming up in the industry?
1: Oh, I think so. I think what I, you know. I, I think we. Um, are you asking specifically to my situation, or just kind of across the board? Like, like.
0: Uh, so I'll, I'll be. I'll take it back a second. I see lots of people complaining about kids these days and they the get off my lawn culture the these entitled young kids they're not going to do anything but for the most part the ones that i've actually talked to i'm seeing they are so much smarter they're so much more well informed they have access to more information than us they're they're more confident than we were uh i'm wondering and it's a bit a uh, bit of an overgeneralization but are you seeing that there's going to be a wave of very well informed confident people joining our industry soon?
1: Well, I'll say this, um one of the, one of the jokes that's been directed to me by, by colleagues of mine in my industry is that they suddenly have realized that there's a lot of people uh in their world who um uh, who uh, claim Iowa as home. So I know that you know I could say that you know uh between the, the, the kids I'm talking to locally, uh, you know, at the high school level that then go on to college and uh, pursue that education, as well as the, the, the people I'm talking to, um, mentoring and finding jobs for you know, that are at the college level, I know that I've been able to actually, you know, make Iowa noticeable, like, you know, it's like that that, uh, that 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 state the name of that state is heard more often in my industry than it once was doesn't mean there weren't already people doing great stuff in this industry mm-hmm. from Iowa because there's a fair number of them but I got that uptick going and I'm, I'm happy to be part of that but I got to say overall in general I, I find that 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 movement of, uh, of, of you know fresh fresh new um, uh, confident, well-trained talent in our industry is a is a constant flow, from what I see, and um, and I'm happy to see too that I mean I think you know I'm happy to see that most of them are are coming in with the education that they can get from a good theater program and or arts you know art program, and um, mm-hmm. and I'm happy I'm happy that that's happening because I think they um they bring they bring uh, competence and professionalism to our industry or have done you know when when that shift started to happen a couple like a decade ago maybe a couple decades ago mm-hmm. i think they brought a lot to the uh industry coming in with their theater training of course then they had to learn how to adapt that theater training to to music and broadcast but mm-hmm. it was good
0: so when you and i were coming up in the there were no podcasts that where you could sit and chat with Stan Crocker for an hour. There were, there were, there were just radio shows and the occasional TV shows and maybe a documentary here and there and everything else came from textbooks. But now the the next generation coming up, they have access to so much more information than we did. I, I can only imagine that that's going to bring, that's going to give them just a huge leg up. When they enter the professional side of our industry,
1: I think so. I think they're getting exposed to technology earlier than most of us did, and, and mm-hmm. uh, it's just um, <clears throat> it's just part of their natural flow. They're not struggling to buy, to, to, to learn new, new new things, new exciting things. They kind of come to it naturally and just dive in. I think all that's uh, apparent with with anybody that's that's come on, come into our world in the last decade.
0: And I think that's why you guest lecturing is so important for you to, for you actually be able to go in there and tell them face to face, like, look, these are some of the, some of the concerns, some of the, the roadblocks you're going to face, but you know, I, I can come and back and tell you that you're going to make it. And there's going to be a professional life on the other side that you can, you can make it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I'm quick to, when I, when I, when I'm guest lecturing, I am quick to own up to the fact that I did not get my degree that I left. uh, I I left uh, Mankato state um, after a couple of years because I, um, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I, and I always preface that by saying um, you know, your professor is probably going to not want to hear this, but, you know, my career was not the result of my education. I took one, Mm -hmm. really one or two theater classes and the rest of it was um, helping all my friends who were in those theater classes, just do their shows. And then getting into the uh, artist in residency program at the student activities union and, and, uh, and booking concerts and being involved in the production of those concerts. So although I was attached to a, University and I give a lot of credit. I'm not. I'm not trying to take anything away from the professors and the program that I was uh, peripheral to at Mankato State because it did move me forward. Um, but I, I can say that it wasn't. Um, I, I did not get that education, and uh, and so when I'm speaking mm-hmm. to them, I say, you know, do as I wish. I had not what I did. I mean, I, I, I. <laughs> <laughs> I got lucky. I made good, I made, uh, made good moves without, you know, without any real reason to believe that, that, uh, that they were going to be good moves. I just felt compelled. I decided I, I've, I've got everything I can get, um, uh, in this town. And, uh, I drove up to Minneapolis and I walked into a lighting company, light sound and lighting company and, and asked him for a job. And, uh, and off I went and it just led to a, a series of events that ultimately got me into the industry Over a three-year period.
0: That is a, that's a brave move to just knock, to just walk right up and knock on the door and say, Hey, you guys, I, I know this is what I want to do. I don't have any experience. I don't have any background. I just want to, I know whatever it is you guys are doing in there, it looks cool and I want to be a yeah. part of it. So, so, so hire well, I had man. the good
1: fortune of, of knowing some of the crew that were involved in that with that company because they would be the company that would come down to Mankato when we had concerts and they would, they, they would provide the uh, the gear and the crew. And uh, so they they paved the way for me a little bit but um, it was still it was pr- still pretty bold to 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 mm-hmm. walk up to uh, uh, to Michael Justin the owner of the company it was just you know just uh extraordinary human being of you know, one of those, just, how can this person be the same person? He's like, uh, he was a a Marine veteran and, uh, and the uh, former owner of a, uh, a place called the scholar um, coffee house with a bunch of, you know, the the hippiest of hippies on the university of Minnesota's West bank. It just, just didn't seem like this could be uh, one, one man doing it all, but he, uh, he gave me that job. And, uh, and then I, just I started uh, picking up side jobs, working for an R&B band that had all these players from um, around around the city. And Minneapolis, St. Paul had an extraordinary uh, musical community; still does. Mm-hmm. Community of musicians, and and a lot of these guys were would record with Prince and record with uh, Jimmy Jam and uh, Terry Lewis at Flight Time. They're, they were all over, not only Minneapolis records, but records from uh, all over the world and, um, and so I was, you know, I put myself in the right place, but uh, I, it was still lucky for me that 90 miles from where I was going to school, there was a right place and I could, I could, I could get there and, and, uh, and dive in.
0: So one of the things that they used to teach us in college to, in order to do what you just talked about was we had to have a portfolio we would never knock on a door without a a three ring binder with some photos and, and some of the, a list of all the shows we had done in high school and college and some references. And do you even teach people about portfolios anymore or how do you, what sort of tools would you recommend the next generation have when they go to knock on that door like you did?
1: Well, okay. So, for one thing, I got to own up to the fact that um, when, you know, I'm not I'm not teaching these folks. I, right. you know, for me to claim that title, I would have to have a, a curriculum and, and be sticking with it. And uh, so, Brian Wynn at the University of Iowa and Scott Olinger at Cornell College—they're the ones that are doing the teaching. And I'm sure that right. they are sharing that 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 kind of information with with these guys.
0: Okay.
1: I, I, um, but I have been, I have consistently. Stress the importance of marketing yourself, uh, and yes. uh, and I have uh, and I've I've given them a lot of ideas on how they might do that from my perspective, and I have you know I have great regret that um, that the early part of my career, really the the touring part of my career that would have lasted um, I don't know eight or nine years that there's really very little in the way of documentation of most of that and it makes me sad
0: that and, is sad
1: you know but on the other hand <laughs> after that i probably got one of the, the most documented careers ever because i you know <laughs> got seven or eight hundred you know video shoots with uh four or five hundred bands over the course of uh 20 years and mm-hmm. and a lot of comedians and of uh, studio installs and situations like that. So it's all there for me. I all, you know as long as I'm collecting the video and holding on to it, I can look back with happy reminiscence. I, I rarely do.' Mm-hmm. It's time, but uh, it's nice to know it's there. but I still it's, it's, I, I'm still sad about not having uh, photographs of, of my uh, uh, touring days.
0: So I'd imagine you don't have a a portfolio readily available that uh, you could use if you needed to get a client these days.
1: Uh, we just uh, our reel does most of that. For us. Okay. Yeah. That that's does. where
0: it is these days. It's all about a video reel yeah. that you can send to somebody, and that's that's yeah. the tool now.
1: Yeah, it is. It makes it's, sense. I mean, it's it an
0: online fun. presence.
1: It's yeah. it's a logical step forward. And uh, even, you know, even if your thing isn't broadcast, uh, Seth and I have definitely focused on broadcast for the last you know, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, even if your thing is uh, just totally about tour design, um, you know, you can still get a lot of that video footage from uh, productions that you move in and out of mm-hmm. and uh, and turn that into a reel.
0: Yeah. So one of the things you just mentioned that I, I don't know if it exists anymore, but you were trying to mention if. Even if you're not trying to get into broadcast that you should still have a reel. But the for better or for worse, the truth is now everything is for broadcast. Yes it uh, is. Whether, like <laughs> whether you want it to be or not, it's going to be broadcast. Yeah. Just like you said, the last twenty years. I mean once there's a digital version of a photo, it's gonna make it around the world before your portfolio ever could.
1: It is. And the truth is, you know, I mean, going back to just going back to the reel for just a second, um, you know the quality of of uh, of our uh, our phone cameras these days, and, and and Seth talked a lot about that in, in the conversation we had with them. Um, the uh, you know you can you can make your own reel with uh, with with a uh, with a, a you know just proper use of a, of an iPhone. You can get in there and. and and shoot, shoot your own stuff, and and type, you know, edit that into a reel, or have have an editor do it because you always want to go with the people that know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's easy enough to uh, put together your reel, whether you're in broadcast or not. You just go out and shoot your show. Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so it's with your iPhone nowadays. You can even gauge how your show looks and get a more accurate representation from your iPhone than you can with your eye nowadays because you're not just lighting for the 10,000 people in the arena you're lighting yep. for the 100,000 they're going to watch it on YouTube
1: yep exactly yeah right. and you know back to that uh, that tagline that Seth Robinson and I have been using for the last you know last several months is that everything is for broadcast. I mean, we live and breathe that, and we absolutely believe it. And and we are always happy to share what we've learned over the course of, of, of our careers. Um, we want that, we, we just want to see good content out there. We want to see people capturing their shows and uh-huh. uh, and getting them out there in the world and making that, that record of it. And so, um, you know, we, we, we just kind of made that, we've made that our mission lately. And uh, no, because, you know, uh, uh, as, as, and as the listeners may not know that you uh, just recently uh, did an interview with my, uh, my uh, uh, colleague at sightline design group, Seth Robinson, and he gets into that more than I want to today. Um, he, or he got into that more than I want to today. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, it's just, I'll just, I would like to just simply say, Everything is for broadcast is something that all of us should be um, holding as a mantra it 's like you just you know go into it knowing that and uh, and you 're doing yourself and your artist a, a big favor in doing so
0: all right so when a lot of people think everything is for broadcast, they think bigger is better,
1: mm.
0: but a lot of the stuff that you do you 're doing. The opposite. You actually seem to have a flair for the minimalism and the impact. And I, some of the stuff that I've seen of your work is just—you're using far fewer lights, but more effectively. Is that a, a general mantra of yours?
1: Uh, it's it's what I always hope I can do and uh, and love to do. I, you know, I mean, the thrill of being involved in, in, in a show like um, like. Um, uh, iTunes Music Festival in London or the Apple Music Festival in London or one of their other projects in uh, Australia, or Austin for South by, you know, those big, those big venues and, and, you know, those, those big projects with uh, big budgets um, uh, and other, you know, stadium shows that I've done for artists, specific clients, arena shows. All that is, of course, I would be lying if I said I didn't love that. I love having a big show But also um, get extraordinary satisfaction, I would say more satisfaction, out of doing something um, much smaller and simpler. I was talking to Seth the other day and and reminiscing about a show that um, we did with Marin Morris and um, and Alicia Keys. Uh, It's a a show that we we, we did many of these uh, CMT um, crossroads shows where they would pair – a country artist with somebody from a, uh, an artist from another musical genre. It was a great concept, and um, and uh, and we love and you know we love doing those projects and and um, but this this particular one is has kind of become my favorite. When somebody asks me you know about favorite projects that I've done, it's one of the three or four that just immediately comes to mind. And uh, in the in the Simplified minimalist category, at least, and mm-hmm. um, you know the situation on that was you know budgets being budgets and gear availability being gear availability. Those two things kind of divided <laughs> on that show. It was a busy time period in Nashville where we were shooting, and uh, and gear was going for top dollar, and uh, we had a fixed budget and say, wow, what do we do? What do we do now? And we came up with this concept that was just the simplest, you know, it's just basically a, a circle that we created, uh, you know, a, a half circle, uh, that we created with, with pipe. And um, I can't remember what we used as, as, the, uh, as the verticals to, uh, to have that upright, it may have been, I think it was a rigging thing, actually. Um, and so, because it, it was in this place called the factory where you can rig like every six inches there's a, there's an option. Um, and mm-hmm. so we, we just did this this uh, semicircle um, from stage right to stage left, and it was nothing but ungelled parts all the way around, no being parts. And you'd think, well, that's not going to carry for a 90-minute show or even a 60-minute show. And it's, um, and to a degree, that's true because of course we did have budget for other things as well. But really, that. That uh, semicircle of PARs um, became, in our minds, and in the minds of the producers, and colleagues who saw it afterwards, became uh, the, the feature of that thing. It was always in some kind of background shot, that shot. It had, we had a lot of chases in there. So we had other, you know, some moving lights as well. Actually, I'm not even sure that's true. I think it may have just been all conventionals. But whatever it was, we had enough toys to support that toy that that became the feature, and it became like a scenic element. It became a piece of, of, uh, of sculpture, you know. And uh, it was immensely satisfying, and it worked really well because you had two extraordinarily talented women up there with the musicians that were there with them, and uh, they they just didn't need much from us. We gave them we gave them what they needed, and and uh, got an extraordinary show out of it. And uh, I look back on that with the same kind of satisfaction that I had from other, you know, similar things. Like, the, you know, Sessions of West 54th, my very first broadcast, broadcast experience. It was, uh, it was given to me as a, um, was brought, you know, I, I got lucky. I got that job because a, um, a director and producer by the name of Jeff Bryan would come out and shoot Ozzy all the time for Sony. And one day, he, uh, he said, you know, I've been looking at the iMegs. I'm, was, he was at the show once getting ready for a, you know, a, a shoot that was going to be coming up. And he said, uh, I was looking at the iMeg screens tonight, really paying attention to those. And I realized that you're shooting for video. And understand, this is you know, 20 years ago, um, that you're, you were shooting for video. And I said, well, Jeb, it just makes sense to me. It's like, you know, the, uh, most, of the, most of the audience... Uh, the best view that they have of the stage are those IMAX screens. So I spent a lot of time thinking about how they look. And uh, and so we pondered that and walked through that a little bit more. And then by the end of it, he, he said, you know, I'm not sure why I, I bring a, why I'm bringing a director of photography with me on this next show. I said, well, that's a question for you to work through. I don't have an answer for that. He said, "Would you be interested in taking that on?" And I said, "I would love to take that on." And so that started my 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 career. I did one shoot with Ozzy at Jones Beach, in which in where in where I was uh, I was the uh, the show lighting designer, board operator, and uh, at the very at the same time running all these other elements: audience lighting, architectural lighting for Jones Beach, all this stuff. Just a one-man, uh, one-man production to create this, uh, you know, this live music documentary, and it worked. And based on that, he offered me a series that he was developing called Sessions of West 54th, and uh, it was intended to be very minimalist. And um, and and it was based on. Basically, Jet gave me a VHS tape of a Miles Davis. Um, performance in 1959 at CBS studios in uh, in New York City and um, and he said this is what I want it to look like I don't see lighting cues happening. I see a fixed look that is interesting for different camera angles and um, and uh, and any adjustments that would be done would be done just for the camera or just for a change in position if somebody moved to a mic where they hadn't been before and so with that as my, uh, as my template, I did a design for, uh, for the show, at, which we shot at um, uh, Sony Studios on, on West, West 54th and 8th in, in Manhattan. And, um, and if you look at it, it is a lot of, there's a lot of negative space in it. There's a lot of shadow play. There's a lot of sculpting. There's a lot of side lighting. There's key lights. Um, you know, it was the definition of minimalist at the time. I would say, I dare say it still is, but more importantly for me, it is the definition of what I love to do. I I get immense satisfaction out of going into a room like that with nothing, but uh, um, and now I'm about to do to, you know, vendors, what I, uh, and manufacturers, what I did to professors when I'm telling kids, oh, I didn't get an, I didn't get an education before, (laughs) but I do love going in And being challenged to do something without any automation. And it's just, it's just conventional lights and it's, you know, PARs and Legos and, and, uh, practical lights and things like that. And I, I just, I find that thrilling. And I did three seasons of that show and it was some of the most satisfying work I've ever done. And I've had the opportunity to do similar things since, but, uh, but, uh, that was that was it for me. That was my introduction to broadcast, and I love it still.
0: That's a great point because it is good design that separates low budget trash from minimalist, gorgeous uh, simplicity.
1: Oh, that was poetry, brother! <laughs> I love that. I love it. Yeah, yeah. the difference between just. Scraping by trying to get make do with a low budget and 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 deliberately taking Yeah, less fixtures and doing something with it. There is art in there. And I honestly, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's theater kids that can probably find that easier than the rest of us. I got lucky I I had a I had a template I had a, a 30 year old Miles Davis show to look at where some guy was using big TV instruments. And just getting this beautiful shadow play by lighting a wall. He was, do, he was doing old and beautiful stuff 30 years before I got into the industry. And I just tried to copy it. Mm-hmm. You know, not copy it, but interpret it. Yeah. Run with it. Run with it.
0: It is that forethought and that intention that separates the elegance from just a low budget production. Yeah. Yeah, you're doing more with less. You're not doing less with more. I would imagine. Yeah. I guess that's what I'm getting at there.
1: Yeah, I love it. That is
0: a good feeling.
1: And I don't want to do that only. I don't want to just, do that. <laughs> you know. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that's an that that would be a satisfying thing. I mean, I, I, people that do it are probably very satisfied with it. I'm mean, certainly not questioning that. But for me, I mean, I've had I've had the taste of the uh, of the uh, bigger shows, and I don't get tired of doing them.
0: No me neither it's
1: a, it's a different kind of thing, but yeah uh, but you know that that whole simplicity thing i mean my i i you know I have been a lot of've involved in a lot of, a lot of uh, you know pandemic conversations lately and just um, having chats and I've been talking to a lot of colleagues, um, especially the last month as we're kind of shaking our way out of it and trying to figure out where we 're going, and that simplicity is um. Uh, I, I crave it all the more and I want and I'm just I'm looking for that right now. It's like you know the first thing I want to do is simply that. And, it, and I find myself getting very nostalgic and uh reminiscing and, and for me, um my first my first design gig, my first proper design gig for a tour was a band called the Cowboy Junkies. Um mm-hmm. And uh, they they put out an album uh, called the Trinity Sessions. It was recorded in a church with one mic, and um, and uh, and and the engineer merely positioned them in the play in the place where they could get the best sound for the voice for for Margot's voice for uh, for the for the guitar for the bass. Everything it was just like you know, and he found that sweet spot. And that album defied all comments. You know, it just. It was this huge album at a time when everything was big and loud and bold, and and uh, here's this this band that could go from um, just a quiet whisper to some serious rock and roll, and they did it all with uh, with one microphone in this church, and I got the call to work for them, and um, and and joined them mid tour, and because the tour had been booked before the album became this crazy hit. Um, the budgets, the contracts, everything was like small venues and no extra gear. And I was walking into venues and just like, oh, my God, what am I going to do with this? I walked into the, a place called the Jazz House in uh, Lawrence, Kansas. And I walked upstairs and I found a stage with um, four lights on it literally four lights one upstage right one upstage left one downstage left one downstage right and they were party bulbs the screw in party bulbs <laughs> you know the parlance. but at least um they had lit, they had colored them for me because there was one white and it wasn't like you know I could change this color it wasn't a gel it was it was built right into the into the bulb one white one green one blue and one red and that was the that was the show light and there was no getting anything more. And so I uh, I went out and uh, walked up and down the streets of, of Lawrence, Kansas, hoping to uh, find um, either William Burroughs, who was, uh, you know, the beat poet who was rumored to uh, be living there, or uh, some votive candles, or ideally both. And uh, so I walked up and down that street, and I managed to come back to the venue with about 80 or 90 of those little glass vote of candles. And, um, and this is, uh, this is back in the days when fire marshals were more forgiving and I'm not <laughs> asking for a return to those days at all. Mm-hmm. I got my Mr. Safety moniker for a reason, but <laughs> that day, um, and for that tour, that was the signature look. And when the band walked in, I, I had it all preset. I had no idea if they were going to go for it or not. And, uh, and they walked in and, um, And, um, I had turned out all the house lights and I had all the candles up there and just one of those lights kind of cutting across the stage, you know, the blue car. And, uh, and it started a, uh, a relationship that lasted a couple of years with them where they gave me every opportunity to just explore creative options. I, I took them in a lot of places, a lot of different directions visually and, um, and, uh, that first three or four months, it was just designing in the moment. I would wish a band like the Cowboy Junkies on any young designer because they would just let you go. One time, one time we walked in and there was a, uh, sorry, man, you're gonna have to stop me. If you,
0: <laughs> no, we have all the time.
1: <laughs> I walked into a room in North Carolina and there was this guy who was, um, trying to think of the word, he was a dick. <laughs> and he was the vendor. <laughs> And he was the vendor. And, uh, and, and it was just, you know, I had a light rig from him. It wasn't a big rig because, you know, this is in that part of their career where they're still honoring old contracts and there's no budget. But um, this guy was just like, um, he was just causing all kinds of, he, he got in an argument with our monitor engineer. Um, he was, he pissed off the local crew. Everything about it was wrong. And I called up the tour manager and I said, I want to fire the vendor. And he said, Well, what will we do for lights? And I said, I'm not sure yet. But this guy is just a problem, and uh, and he's slowing down the load in. So if we don't get rid of him, um, we're gonna have uh, it's gonna be a late show anyway. I'd just soon get rid of him. We've got the candles, if nothing else, we throw a you know, throw a spot on Margot and we got a show, and he said, Do it. So I fired him. And uh, and I and, and to jump ahead on this story, I found out later on a couple of the guys were telling me that he was always doing stuff like this. And that in fact, like a month earlier, the Billy Idol crew had taken him out in the alley and and beat the hell out of him. (laughs) So I guess that alternatively, what I did, you know, just firing him was an act of mercy. You know, we didn't, we didn't take him out in the back, in the back alley, but um, so we, you know, did the candles and it turned out this, uh, one of the guys in the crew had a, In his pickup truck outside, he had like four stands with uh, two par cans in each one. And I dressed in black and the band was cool with it. And I would just go around and between uh, songs while Margo was doing her little talk, I would change the gels and then bring them up and there'd be a new color in there. And then uh, it was a movie theater and they had some noir film that I can't remember now. And I just softened the focus on the projector and we ran that. Movie in the background, without any effort of stopping or starting it or anything like that.
0: David's
1: favorite shows ever. When it was just so. Obvious.
0: What a great background that must have been. It would have been constant motion, but yeah, indistinct. Exactly.
1: Yeah, ultimately, Margot, like about halfway through, I said, uh, on, you know over the mic as his way, Stan, um, I can't stop watching the movie. I think maybe we should probably go ahead and." Dial that down, and there was a smattering of applause out in the audience. I like, guess that was fun, but let's move on to another part of your design stage. <laughs> and so, we got um, the message,
0: Stan. Thank you. Let's yeah. next song. I called up the uh, <laughs> I
1: yelled up to the uh, to the uh, projection booth. And I said, Kill the movie, yeah. And just uh, after that, it was all sidelight and gel. You can see
0: him drop a gel into it or something.
1: How fun, I mean, you know. <laughs> It a lot of fun. Those are great days.
0: So was the tour done with one microphone? Or was that uh, just for the uh, one thing?
1: No, it was just that room. I mean, that room was... I mean, it was that room and that engineer's, that producer's skills. Um, and Interesting. The music, uh, that were provided by a, a long-dead architect. Um, all that is what made that work. But in the real world, out on, on tour, they, they had you know a sound team, a sound crew, and mic it up but it Hold was on. still very you know the approach was simple the, the vibe was simple it was they were uh they never lost sight of they never lost track of themselves in spite of uh, being the darlings of everybody i mean sean penn followed us down the west coast watching shows so he was, he was shooting up in vancouver and had a few days off he just kept coming to shows and uh, Wow. It was, yeah, all these actors and musicians are, were showing up because this was something completely fresh and a very talented bunch of young people doing uh, boldly new and yet extraordinarily simple stuff. Not that the music was outside of
0: Outside of asking you to pause the movie, did they have a lot of creative input into the designs or was it, was it carte blanche for you? Uh,
1: it was pretty much carte blanche I mean you know they never said no to anything you know I'd walk into a, a big bar in Belgium and there'd be a bunch of empty beer kegs and I created like an arc of 12 Stonehenge like <laughs> put high you know <laughs> cylinders and, and cross lit it and they were down with that you know and, and uh you know, is that that kind of stuff? They just, you know, do something whatever you want. To, you know, they just they just gave me they gave yeah. me right, and it was fun on that tour too because with Margo, you know, she was she had a stool out there and she had a red solo cup and and uh, uh, I gradually first thing I did was get her a you know one of the classic you know woven rugs that we all love so much. I put that down on the floor so she had a defined space that was hers. And, uh, and then the next day, I, I found her I, um, um, a, uh, a table, this beautiful table, and, and I asked her if I could uh, take over her, her beverage duties at night and get rid of the red Solo cups. And she said yes, and so she had her own glass that, was, that traveled with us that I would wash and, and fill with whatever it was she was drinking that night, which is generally water. And, uh, and then I started taking all the flowers out and, and crafting a little thing on her table. And, and every day it just kind of, you know, it just grew. And with that, the, the trust from her and the band that I just created this this space for her. And then once I was done with her area, I started with the boys and got more rugs. And, and of course the, 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 the candles always were there mm-hmm. as, a, as a constant. And so that was, you know, it was just a work in progress for that first uh, leg of that tour, the first three or four weeks, just kind of creating this really comfortable vibe on stage that perfectly suited the music. And, um, and uh, then following that, I uh, was given the budget for their first tour, their first full, you know, full production tour. And um, with that budget um, went to them with drawings and a concept that was, uh, very asymmetrical, which was un- unusual in the uh, in the 80s for a concert tour. And uh, it had projection, which is also very unusual in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, it was uh, you know, one of my more satisfying moments in life, putting that thing together and rehearsing it and getting it out on the road.
0: Now, you just touched on a very important topic that when you're up there framing in and building and creating you're not just controlling the lighting and the illumination you're 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 piloting the atmosphere you're you're a part of the entire vibe so what you're adding to is not just the light mm-hmm. you're actually helping put them in an atmosphere of comfort yes and, and creativity
1: yeah yeah, I that exactly lost right. a lot of time
0: because from front of house. Go ahead.
1: No, I I, I really um, enjoyed creating that space for Margo in particular. I, I you know, she was the, she was the, uh, the, the visual front of the band visual and the vocalist, And, um, and so it was all on her, you know, the boys could sit in the background with their heads kind of down into their guitars and just, uh, and just really zoning out of the music, and but she had to be the face that was uh, the present that was present, and uh, to to help her feel uh, more comfortable on stage was uh, was uh, a very satisfying part of the job. Creating environments for the band for artists as well as a show for the audience is part of the gig, I think.
0: Were you just feeding off of their their creativity, or were you generating the atmosphere? For them, were you generating the the creative vibe?
1: Well, i definitely was responding to their own creativity. Got it. You know, and 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 not just the music, and not just their stage performance. I mean, we were all living on the same bus at that point. I quickly came to understand who they were. They used to have, uh, uh, you know, they used to have like uh, competitive uh, origami matches in the back lounge. Turn <laughs> physical. Somehow this thing turned physical and they'd be back there creating and the cutting out origami. It was just like one of them got into that and uh and uh and started, you know, started bringing it on the bus and then everybody got into it and uh and so you know, you start to get a sense of of who they are and then and then, you know, early on in the tour a couple of weeks into it, um we ended up on a, with a, a couple of days off in Toronto and I was I visited um of all, each of their houses there's there were three houses for the four of them um and you know got a sense of who they were at home and and uh, and all that you know okay it all comes together
0: so you were complimenting their vibe and their atmosphere more than trying to take it in your own direction
1: oh absolutely Yeah, definitely okay and happily happily so
0: cool <clears throat> after that have, has that been a general trend For you, are you usually just kind of trying to amplify the band's overall message?
1: Well, I think that's, I think it'd be safe to say that's what we should all be doing. That we should be reflecting our our, uh, our artist clients in some way up there. But at the same time, we need to acknowledge that, uh, they may not want to be reflected as they live at home or as they are. They may mm-hmm. be reflected by whatever narrative they put out there for themselves. <clears throat> what that part of them that they're willing to focus on and give up to the rest of us, you know, give over to the rest of us, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah. As so, a
0: designer though, you, I would imagine there are times when you're really trying to convince your client or your artist like, hey, you're playing it really safe right now. We could take you to the next level if you just let me give you some really big ideas. Do you ever find yourself having to convince them to to allow you to go even bigger and get more creative?
1: Um, yeah, you know, I don't know that... Uh, <clears throat> No, I don't think I've ever been in in that position where I've had to force them to go or, you know, push them to go somewhere. I think I've been really lucky that way in that uh, the people that I uh, that that I've uh, had the good fortune to work with over the years in that kind of close artist designer relationship um, as opposed to broadcast, which is a step removed, generally speaking. Right. You you don't really get that that uh, that tightness with them. But, you know. Um, I, uh, it's funny now, I was just getting ready to speak, uh, specifically to sting who I had a long, uh, I, I ran, I had a long run with sting mm-hmm. <clears throat> both with, um uh, uh, video and, uh, and tour designs. And, um, I, um, I was about to say, uh, um, you know, that I was, I was, I was about to suggest that, you know, you're right. In that case, I did kind of, um, sorry, I'm kind of getting lost here trying to pull up. I'm trying to remember a quote while at the same time continuing to talk. And I'm finding that my brain just doesn't work that way. (laughs) No, uh,
0: let's go through the file and
1: try to make my point here. But what it was was that uh, I was getting ready to say essentially no. um, I don't think I've uh, ever push somebody to go beyond where they might themselves go. But I remember specifically Sting saying to uh, myself and uh, and Jim Gable, who were two thirds of the creative team, uh, Jim was the content provider and also the director of uh, uh, the video shoots that I've been doing with Sting prior to becoming part of the tour design team. Uh, and then Bruce Rogers was the uh, production manager on it. <clears throat> Bruce wasn't with us that night, um, in Paris when we were, uh, doing, catching up and doing some programming for some new songs. Um, but Jim and I were, and, uh, it was a great night and, and uh, a lot of excitement about, about, you know, the band's performance and the audience reaction and everybody's just feeling good and backstage. And, and Sting said, um, um, said essentially, and I'm, I'm going to have to paraphrase it, but uh, that, you know, said to Jim and I that, uh, you guys make me feel bigger than life out there, and it's good to feel that way when you're out on stage, you know. And I thought that was—I mean, I really loved hearing something like that, knowing that I was actually that—you know—the things that we were doing around him um, were making him feel comfortable and, and feeling like <clears throat> he was out there, uh, being the rock god. He, the rock god, he is, you know. Um, that we were serving that. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that I've been uh, so bold as to uh, to uh, push a pop star in a direction they wouldn't okay. already want to go. But on the other hand, I've had some extraordinary conversations with my clients. And so in, I, I do think that probably I have had that effect without really uh, doing it all at once or even intending to do it.
0: Maybe, yeah, maybe you've done it without even them knowing it or yeah. even yourself knowing you, maybe these, maybe it just felt perfectly normal to you. They're like, Oh no, these are, these are big ideas.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly we've taken, taken some people in new directions. I mean, just, you know, this simple things like just, you know, early on, just like the use of IMAG. It was initially, I think there was a period of time when people resisted that, when artists resisted that. And, um, and so just getting somebody comfortable back in those days with the idea of their image being you know, 20 feet high on the screen to the right or the left, mm-hmm. um, that took some cajoling. I, um,
0: a lot of people are still very nervous about that, seeing themselves being uh, on the iMag and stuff. I've had a couple of clients that they just refuse. You have to have the iMag in front of them because they know how important it is to have it, but they, they just can't stand to see themselves on it.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, that would be me. I mean, I'm, I'm going through that with zoom right now. The zoom call the I mean, I just, uh, yeah, I, I'm not comfortable with it, you know, and it's, it's, and, and what's more is I, I, um, I, I kind of, uh, find myself unwilling to, uh, to prepare for the party on that. It's like, okay, so I spend my life making pop stars look good and, on, uh, on camera and uh and for me it's like at the last minute i'm like oh shit i need some light on this you know (laughs) like you know it's just like i need a little art direction here i need to do something here yeah talking to 20 clients in a a meeting
0: isn't that that's the weirdest thing we totally understand the importance of looking good and making all the shadows go away and we love doing that for other people but when it comes to ourselves we're just like yeah yeah. Put on a, I'm putting on a T-shirt today, and I, I might comb my hair. <laughs> I know, right. So we are over an hour and a half in. I, I'm about to be running out of time, and I haven't even got to the one of the primary reasons I wanted to give you some time to talk is I love seeing your Instagram. The photos that you decide to put up there are so simple, and you can definitely tell that you're just playing with shadows and negative space and, and just different colors. How do you decide what makes it to the Instagram page? And how, how do you decide which ones you just keep to yourself?
1: I mean, I think it's just kind of a natural process where I, as you say, I'm doing it But I'm not maybe necessarily aware of doing it, but, uh, I think if I have any criteria, it's that it works on the phone. That okay. Small image is going to carry what I want to, what I want to show. And, um, and then, you know, I try to keep about probably about two thirds of it um, focused on light and shadow. It's my okay. monitor on there. Uh, it's uh, you know Department of Light and Shadow, mm-hmm. and it's it's a vibe. I, I I it's you know for me Instagram. For, no, for me Instagram. I'm sure that for everybody Instagram, it's it's an artistic outlet and uh, it's a creative outlet, and it's something that's just for me. It's not for a client. It's not focused on anybody in particular. And so it's just something that I can, you know, that I can do that gives me that satisfaction of having made something and immediately put it out there to the world so that if it's of any interest to anybody else, they can uh, share it and, and, uh, and be part of that. But it's not something that I allow myself much time for because then it would become a thing and it would cause me stress as opposed to, uh, the uh, immense satisfaction and uh, calming that it gives me to just mm-hmm. do something creative, kind of on the run.
0: Some of your, some of the photos are just so well done. Uh, it looks like you, you really have to, it looks like you're really working to get the angles and the timing, right. And uh, well, are these just found elements or are you, are 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 you staging some of everything these?
1: On there is on, I don't, uh, I don't take the time to rearrange anything. I am. Um, I actually have been using this photography and using the Instagram to um, when I talk to um, uh, theater students or filmmaking, filmmaking students. I, uh, I use this. uh, I, I make a point with this that if you're ever going to try and make a living behind a camera, um, you would do well to use your Instagram page for um, a very specific reason of like, you know, developing a camera style and, mm-hmm. and, and finding finding what's good in any given found object shot.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I,
1: I, I walk, uh, you know, five or six miles a, a day. A couple of those miles are, are with my dog, and most of it is done at night or early in the morning, um, you know, when the sun is still, still coming up. And, um, and so um, when I'm doing that, I'm just always coming across something that grabs my attention and uh and i think that for 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 a student i mean you know as uh, you know we've all heard um theater professors and and um, others ourselves included uh saying to kids you know that um um that uh you can look to your surroundings for an education about light you can watch the way you know watch what happens when a car um you know uh, A car and its headlights makes a turn Mm -hmm. and how it sweeps across uh the the front of a house or another building and and there's this uh shadow play in motion there you can see what happens when when there's mist in the air and and how that's different from when there's snow in the air and um and you can see what organic um elements look like in uh, silhouette as opposed to the hard edges of uh of manufactured Mm-hmm. It's been built items and um, and just all that all those things that that we recognize about our surroundings that are interesting, and all I do is I just try to capture them pretty much in the moment
0: One of the things I love about Instagram is that it is just for pretty pictures for the lack of a better term there's no there 's no room to like really put in your politics there there 's really no room to yeah. To do a lot of the other things that happen on the other Facebook on the other uh, social media platforms, and you can really stroll through scroll through a, an Instagram and just kind of be like, yeah, things are things are well, things are pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I, I definitely love stumbling upon your stuff. It's fun. Which, which is interesting because on Facebook, I know that you're the same person, and you but you're able to voice yourself so much more. Uh, vocally uh, you're actually really able to put your opinions out there and you, you have never been afraid to put your stuff out there on Facebook. And yeah, when we were just, when we were coming up, we were always told to not do that. We were told to not talk about politics or how much money we make and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, I, I feel like all of those taboos have been lifted and we're all for For better or for worse, we're all kind of discussing politics on Facebook these days, and and we know that that's going out to the world. It's it's being broadcast. (laughs) For the lack of a a better term, everything is being broadcast there too.
1: Broadcast, yeah. Everything
0: is for broadcast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Do you think that's a positive thing that's happening, or do you think that that's kind of it's? Do you think it's information overload?
1: Um, Honestly, I think it's there's a lot of negative attached to it. I, I finally took a break from Facebook. A couple of months ago, I just couldn't do it anymore. I just, I hated it. I hated everything about it. I hated the vitriol. I hated the, uh, I hated finding myself in arguments with people who I could otherwise have a fairly decent relationship with, but on some point, um, we would clash mightily and it wasn't always even like the division between progressive and conservative. Sometimes it was me not being progressive enough for somebody. <laughs> which, uh, took issue a big way. I am a pragmatic progressive and, uh, mm-hmm. See how I, how wound up you just got me in that that 90 seconds there, Chris. I'm just, uh, <laughs> I, just you know, I find myself arguing with people, and it's like God, not, not, neither of us are walking away with this with an education from this. Neither one of us are going to change our minds. So all we've done is just lay out a whole bunch of ill will, and um, and I just didn't want to be part of it anymore. And I and I have deliberately kept that out of Instagram. Instagram is is visual for me, and it is for the most part, without any kind of, uh, of politics um, or mm-hmm. any, kind of, you know, any kind of major statement other than one that is visual. But with, you know, with Facebook early on, I realized it was a way for me to uh, uh, get, get my views out there. And I've never been shy about that. Pre-social media, I was never shy about that. Mm-hmm. I uh, couldn't imagine why I would be on social media. Why I would not speak when I see injustice, why I would not suggest a positive way to change something, why I would not mm-hmm. speak to the to one candidate being better than another candidate, and here's why. Um, and so yeah, I, uh, I've not been shy. You're right. And uh, yeah, and it's up to others to know whether that was a a good move or, or not, whether that is a good move or not. We all have to take it seriously, though. I think we all, everybody, has to sit back and say, "Do I want to be this vocal on a public forum over which I have little control?" And mm-hmm. my answer, obviously, has been a resounding yes.
0: I agree. Sometimes I, I can't find my, I can't stop myself from sharing something that I know to be true in so many ways. There's a lot of things on there that I share that I think are just interesting, but sometimes it's. I can't help myself. I just have to try and get that information out there. Sometimes you just have to share it. You're like, no, I God, I can't believe the whole world doesn't know this. I have to tell everybody I know, like, Hey, this is something that's, that's out there. So, yeah, I think,
1: think, you know, I don't, for the most part, I don't think about it very often. And, and, uh, you know, moments like this, I do, I do ponder it and I do take stock and I know that I've, you know, I've know that I've lost work over it um, in the past, and I'm okay with that. I so many other people lose so much more than a little mm. bit of income. It wasn't the biggest part of my income. It wasn't a big hit, but um, it was a terrible feeling to know that uh, that that uh, my uh, uh, heartfelt belief in a particular uh, uh, concept, um, way of looking at things, uh, could cost me. It cost me work. Yeah, that that, yeah. that you can't just like just walk by that without feeling something. Um, but I don't I don't ever regret I don't regret it.
0: Same. Uh, even on top of work, like I've lost friends. Yeah, and and I don't know if that's a negative thing. I don't know if if losing those friends was as bad as I initially thought. At yeah, one point, right. I'm like, wow, oh, maybe, maybe I don't, maybe I didn't need that person. You know, right. I, I definitely did the digital version of them. I, you know, in real life, I would hate if they actually got up and walked away from me, but sure. for them to just unfollow me on Facebook, you're like, yeah, oh, maybe, maybe they don't way. need to experience the digital version of me, you know? <laughs> so, I yeah, uh, I, I would business. like to think that if I ran into a bar and they were there, I'd be like, hey, so. That was awkward, but we're still friends, right? In real life? Yeah. Oh, yeah. In real life, we're still friends. Just yeah, not, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's just not talk about that thing that uh, you talked about there. So, yeah. We'll, we'll yeah, I, uh,
1: I think the issues have gotten way too important now, too, to... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, we can't be quiet. You can't be quiet in the face of what happened in Minneapolis. You can't. No. Yeah, you know, you just... You can't. We can't just... Sit silently and not take a stand one way or the other on that. If you, you know, I just don't see how uh, how anybody can um, respond to what happened to George Floyd without emotion of some kind and yeah. without a determination to speak to it and to um, to change something about it, to change a lot about it, to to see great change happen because of it, long overdue change. It's just, you know, that's, I don't know how we, uh, there was no, there was no way around that. Social media. I agree. Command us to speak up in that moment. And, and thank God everybody did. I mean, it's, and, and continues to, there's still marches going on.
0: Yeah. This is, in fact, uh, we just touched on it once, once again, everything is broadcast. You everything know, is it it broadcast. doesn't, happen, doesn't yep. matter if it's in the middle of the street, everything is, yeah. everything is for broadcast. If anything, I'm probably gonna, that's probably gonna have to be the title of this uh, podcast now because that is in so many ways for better or for worse, everything is for broadcast now. It's,
1: well, look, I mean, look what, you know, we caught what happened. We, we caught what happened with George Floyd in Minneapolis. We caught, What happened to the uh, elderly man in uh, Buffalo, New York getting knocked down by men who swore to, you know, a group of men that swore to uphold the law, swore to protect protect the citizenry, and they knocked him over and walked over him, you know, that kind of stuff should be visible to us. And I'm glad it's all over Facebook, and I'm glad social media exists, and I'm glad that uh, we have the cameras to carry that information to social media. Thank God for.
0: Yeah, God. with without the video footage, it's just he said, she said, and like, yeah, it, maybe yeah, he just fell. I mean, he's seventy-five. That. Maybe he just tripped. But
1: now but it seems he, like the video. He, he didn't trip. It seems like almost everything that matters right now is getting is getting recorded. It may take a while. Yeah. I mean, there's still some things coming out yeah. from Minneapolis. Some lost bits of video that weren't available initially that are coming out. I saw one the other day that was just as horrific as my first viewing of that situation. Um, You know, this new stuff keeps coming up in all kinds of incidents and and it makes, it it makes it possible for us to address it, to address it and to change it, being confronted with it. It's horrific. It's, we want to avert our eyes. It upsets us. It causes us all to lose sleep and it should.
0: It should. I agree. It
1: also gives us an opportunity to be part of change that should have happened a long time ago. And hopefully this is it. This is the year. We don't step back from it.
0: I agree. That is a great way to end it. I, I hope that anybody who's listening is taking this to heart because it is our job is a major part of our job is creating emotion. And part of that is getting the message out there and amplifying the message of our artists and whatever's happening in our lives. And it's, it's really important to get that out there and make people feel things about it and do something about it.
1: Yeah.
0: That's I not agree. something we should shy away from.
1: Absolutely not. We can't. It's not an yeah. option anymore, is it? It's not. We do not have the option of shying away from it anymore, nor yeah. should we.
0: Thank you, Stan. I, I, really, I really appreciate you taking this time. I know we've gone way over time and I hope I haven't uh, caused you any, any strife for, for keeping you this long, but uh, I've oh, no, no, enjoyed every moment of this discussion.
1: Yeah, it's been great. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you, Stan. I appreciate
1: right. it. Take care. See you guys.